Lamentations isn't a popular book among Christians. I suspect many of us have never read it. It's not a pleasant book. It's deeply disturbing, in fact. The book reflects on the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon in 587 BC. And within the book are these horrifying details about that experience. But I'm convinced Lamentations has something to say to us. Months ago, I planned to preach this for other reasons, but here we are amid a global pandemic, and what many of us are feeling are the emotions of Lamentations. We're feeling grief and fear and anxiety and loss. We've lost any sense of normalcy. We're wondering if things will ever go back to the way they were. And in all likelihood, they'll never be quite like they were, for better or for worse, of course. Then there's so many of us, quite apart from the pandemic, who in our congregation are mourning greater losses, like deaths in our family. Some of us have been mourning for years. We can't seem to move past it. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's devastating, the loss of a loved one. It's okay to mourn. And then there are challenges we face as a church. And for all of these reasons, Lamentations is a good book for us. It is a good book for us because it schools us in the language of grief, of despair, of pain, of sorrow, of loss, of fear, of wondering about the future. It teaches us that life can absolutely wallop us. It can overwhelm us and then kick us when we're on the ground. And Lamentations gives us permission to be honest about our situation while we're laying in the dust. Sometimes people have the impression that Christians never grieve. This is simply not true. Scripture is replete with examples of deep, agonizing, gut-wrenching grief. Lamentations is one of those examples. Lamentations shocks us with horrible images so that we can face up to the sorrow of a sinful world. But in the middle of all of that horror and mess, right in the middle of the book is a glimmer of hope. The hope is not necessarily that things will get better. The hope is in the character of the Lord. Who God is. While the Lord is just and holy and powerful and mighty, and that is on display throughout the book of Lamentations as he punishes sin, he is also compassionate and constant in faithfulness. Hope is grounded in God's character. It's not some sort of nebulous, wishful thinking. It is grounded in who God is. So today, what we want to do is look at Lamentations 1. In this sermon series, we'll take just one chapter at a time. The first verse in the book is like a a cinematic opening with the camera panning across the devastated city of Jerusalem. There she is with her buildings smoldering in ruin. Look at verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess 
among the provinces has become a slave. We find a common theme as we read Lamentations 1 closely. The idea that Jerusalem is now alone without a comforter is repeated five times. In verses 2, 9, 16, 17, and 21 of chapter 1, we have this phrase, there is no comforter, or a comforter is far off, each time using the same Hebrew word for comforter. This is the striking feeling as devastation sets in. I'm alone. There's no one to comfort me. There's no one to help me. Everybody has abandoned me, and here I am. The first six verses of the chapter describe the devastation of Jerusalem. Once she was prosperous and secure, now she is pitiful and shattered. Her glory is gone. Listen to the language. Verse 1, she who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. Verse 2, all her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Verse 6, her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They led without strength before the pursuer. All of these vivid images point to the reality of her devastation. According to verse 7, she can recall the good days, the glory days, but those are in the past. They are gone. Why has this happened to her? Take a look at verse 5. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because, here's our reason, because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. The Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. And then there's verse 8. Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Jerusalem sinned grievously. The city, Jerusalem, also speaks in verse 18. She's one of the major voices. We have the poet, sometimes thought to be uh, Jeremiah, and then the city. These are the major voices in the book. But in verse 18, we hear the city. She says, The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against His word. She has sinned against the Lord. She has rebelled. It is Genesis 3. All over again, Adam and Eve have disobeyed. And now the Son of God, Israel, Jerusalem, has rebelled. Now, here we need to talk about a few things so that we can apply these passages rightly to our own lives, uh, to our own circumstances, Lots of people are, are applying biblical texts to the global pandemic right now. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think the Bible does speak to today, but the Bible rightly interpreted is what is authoritative for today. We can't simply pull out a Bible verse and say, this applies to our situation. We have to do the hard work of thinking about what it actually means and what it meant to the original readers, and also the storyline of the Bible and the theology of the Bible, how it all fits together. 
So we need to think about a few things. And the first thing we need to think about is we need to talk about Israel's unique relationship with the Lord. The Lord made a promise to Abram in Genesis 12. He said, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We call this the Abrahamic covenant and it's absolutely essential to understanding the story of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. The Lord enters into a covenant relationship with Abram, who will later become Abraham. This is the Lord's choice, not Abram's. Abram doesn't do anything to earn this covenant relationship. And throughout Scripture, the Lord is described as constant in his steadfast love. In fact, there's a Hebrew word. Uh, the Hebrew word translated steadfast love refers to to covenant faithfulness. It's a single word, but it always harkens back to this idea that God is faithful to his covenant. Because the Lord is always faithful to his covenant, the Lord continues to care for Abraham's descendants. And we see that story sketched out in the remainder of Genesis. Then we come to Exodus. And because of his covenant faithfulness, the Lord sets Israel free from slavery in Egypt. Now this is critical once more. Did Israel do anything to earn it? No. God does this by his own good pleasure. He made a covenant with Abram and then Abram's descendants who will lead us to Israel. And then God continues to be faithful to his covenant. We call this grace. Then after God has taken Israel to himself as his people, he gives them the law. And I can't emphasize this enough. We make a terrible mistake when we think that the law comes first. The law did not come first. The law is the response to God's grace. God acts first in grace, and then the law is the subsequent response to now this is what it looks like to be the people of God. Put another way, the law is not the way to enter into God's grace. It is the response to God's grace. In the law, Israel is given covenant obligations. These are the rules for life in the covenant. Life in relationship to God. It's very similar to marriage vows. That is exactly what we're doing. We're making our covenant obligations to each other. Violation of the covenant vows could lead to serious consequences. Leviticus 26 explains all of this uh, clearly. There the Lord repeats that covenant violations will result in sevenfold punishment. The punishment is severe because the violation is serious. Listen to Leviticus 26 verses 14 through 17. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you. And you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. 
Now, I expect we are troubled by this. This is harsh language. Where's the gracious, loving God? Let me say a few things about that. The Lord has been gracious already by freeing Israel from slavery. He didn't have to do that, but he did because he's faithful to his covenant. Furthermore, his rules are not burdening, but life-giving. He does not give them rules that are a heavy yoke upon them, but they're meant to give them life. Additionally, if there's really a God, we should expect that that God would not be like us. And so it shouldn't be surprising that we find some things he does offensive because we're not God. We should come to expect that God will act in a way contrary to what we would expect. We just need to remember we aren't really in the position to call him into judgment for it. Finally, there is grace in this warning. There's the grace of the warning itself, the fact that he gave it, that shows patience. Then there's the reason given in Leviticus 26, 18, that all these things are done in order to turn Israel back to the covenant. So God's discipline All of these scary warnings are meant to bring them back. And there's restraint and fatherly care in that. Just like when you discipline your children, you don't do it with a heavy hand or because you're malevolent. You do it because you want to turn them back to the way of life, to the proper course. And finally, there's the promise Toward the end of Leviticus 26, that the Lord does not ever break covenant. Listen to verse 44. Yet for all of that, that is all of their sin, when they are in the land of their enemies. So after they've been exiled as a result of their rebellion, listen to what the Lord says. He says, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. I will not break my covenant. This is exactly what the Bible means when it says the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Remember, steadfast love means covenant faithfulness. Covenant faithfulness is his character forever. So that's the first thing. Israel has a unique relationship, a covenant relationship with the Lord. Now, here's a warning. We make a mistake when we start applying the law and the covenant stipulations that are unique to Israel, to other nations and peoples, except, and here's the one exception where we can apply it, to the church. Applying the covenantal law to America, for example, is a sure way to misunderstand the Bible. Second, this should be clear from the preceding point, what I've just said, but we shouldn't assume all bad things are a result of sin. And what I mean here is that we shouldn't go about saying, well, look, we've broken the covenant law, so now as a nation, us being in America, We've broken the covenant law, so now we're being punished for sin. That covenant law was not made with us. 
Okay, now it does tell us something about God's character and what He desires and what He expects, but remember the order. God is gracious first, and that law is meant as a response. This is not the way that God governs all nations everywhere at all times. Okay, so, so that's part of this. But the other thing is simply this. All bad things are not divine judgment. Yes, that's the case here in Lamentations, because Israel had violated the covenant. But not all bad things are God's judgment. Paul speaks of all creation being subjected to the curse of sin in Romans 8. That means natural disasters aren't always God's judgment. Though, we can always discern His hand in everything that happens in the world. But, we don't need to interpret a tornado hitting a particular city as God judging that city for something. No more than we need to look at outbreaks of the coronavirus and begin to say that's because they are doing something that displeases God. Okay, that's a dangerous line of thought. And it's dangerous precisely because Jesus teaches it's dangerous. Remember the story in John where the disciples asked Jesus about the man born blind? They say, Jesus, who sinned? This man or his parents? Look, he's blind. That was the common perception that, that somebody must have done something wrong. That there's this reciprocal relationship between God and creation. That if you sin, God's going to strike you. He's going to get you. But do you remember what Jesus says? Jesus answered, it was not this man, not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus gives us an alternative This is an opportunity, he says, to see God's glory displayed in creation, which, by the way, is the purpose of creation itself. John Calvin referred to it as the theater of God's glory because we are to see, that's the word theater, we are to see God's glory in creation. That's its purpose. That's our purpose. So we want to be careful pronouncing God's judgment. Sometimes bad things are just the result of a sinful world. But in every case, there is opportunity to see God glorified. That's true of a man born blind. It is true of Lamentations 1, where Israel has sinned and they are absolutely destroyed by the armies of Babylon And horrifying things have happened to them. And it is true of the global pandemic that we are in. Third, what can we take away from the language in Lamentations that Israel is being punished for her sin? So what do we take away from Lamentations 1? I think we have three big theological categories here. The first is the holiness of the Lord. When we talk about the God of the Bible, we are talking about the blinding purity of perfection. Habakkuk 1.13 says that he is of purer eyes than to see evil. We seem to forget his holiness sometimes. We seem to think that he is something like us, that he has feelings like us, or that he acts like we do, or that his moral compass is similar to ours. We must not forget that. God is separate, which is the meaning of holy. To be set apart, to be different, to be rare, to be unique. 
This leads to a second category here. The second is the seriousness of sin. Now, the language of lamentation shocks us, and it should. It's horrifying. Literary and film critics talk about the function of horror novels and and films. And what the horror genre does is it shows us monsters and other disturbing things in order to expose darkness. It is a caricature, a highlighting, a hyperbole of, of something that we might not pay attention to unless we saw it in the form that those novels and those movies depicted in. It shows us what's actually there all along. And Lamentations is doing something similar. See, there's the brutal reality of Jerusalem's destruction. And if you read through this book, it is dark. It's incredibly dark. The language is horrifying. The circumstances are awful. This all serves to reveal the horrifying reality of sin. Some people recoil at lamentations and see God as a monster, but that is to fail to see the seriousness of sin. Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright notes, that is, do they take seriously the account of the depth and depravity of Israel's religious apostasy, social disintegration, economic oppression, judicial corruption, criminal violence and bloodshed, and political factions and folly? Every conceivable form of moral and spiritual wickedness was flourishing with disastrous consequences for families, for the poor, for the victims of rampant inequality and greed, and for those caught up in the ritualized sexual abuse of the fertility cults. All of that to say, when we look at Israel's story in, say, Ezekiel or Jeremiah or 2 Kings, the end of 2 Kings, we see that depravity was rampant and sin is serious. And so Lamentations exposes exposes the seriousness of sin. Finally, the third category we should see is the Lord's covenant faithfulness. Whereas Israel failed, the Lord remains faithful. The whole Old Testament is basically that story, by the way. The whole book of Lamentations is a testimony to God's faithfulness. Why else would the book cry out to God, appealing to the covenant? How long, O Lord, will you leave us in this situation? We are your people despite the fact that we've sinned because you are a God who keeps covenant forever. Robin Perry, in his commentary on this book, writes, Crucial to understanding the hope implicit in Lamentations is the appreciation that the fire of divine judgment falls within a covenant relationship and does not mean the end of that relationship. While things are utterly horrible in Lamentations, and they will be for some time, Israel's not getting out of that mess anytime soon, the Lord will be faithful. This isn't to say that Lamentations provides the patronizing pat on the head. It will all be okay. It does nothing of the sort. It clearly and boldly says over and over and over, this is terrible. Yet, and yet, 
The Lord remains faithful to His covenant. He will not abandon forever. He will restore the covenant violators. That leaves us with one more thing to talk about. How do we read Lamentations as Christian scripture? It is part of the Old Testament. So in the story of God's plan of salvation, the history of redemption, it comes prior to Christ. But as Christians, we have received the Old Testament as the Word of God, and we believe that from the vantage point of the New Testament, Christ is to be found in the Old Testament. So, how do we read this as Christians? I think here's how we can do it, at least one way. There are several ways I can think of reading Lamentations as Christians, and and the history of interpretation of this book in the church shows several ways to approach it. Uh, But here is the way I think at least chapter 1 and the way we've spelled out the background to the covenant um, that we read it this week. In, In upcoming weeks, we'll have other things to say about where we're seeing Christ and his gospel, which is where we always must get, right? If we're not talking about that, we haven't ever got to Christianity. So here we go. The holy God makes a covenant. The people violate the covenant. The seriousness of this covenant violation is exposed throughout the entire book. There is no comforter. That's really the wake-up call to reality. The coronavirus pandemic has done a tremendous job waking us up to that. I think it's one of the great lessons for us during this time. There is no cure. There is no vaccine. There is no promise of safety or security. So where do you turn? Where do you turn? In 1 John chapter 2, Jesus is called our advocate before the Father. That word advocate is the Greek word parakletos. Sometimes it can mean something like comforter or helper, as in John 14, 16, when Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. That's the word parakletos, same word. Notice he, Jesus, implies that he himself is a helper when he says he will give you another helper. So I am a parakletos, I am a helper, I'm a counselor, an advocate, and the Lord will give you another. And we know this is the Holy Spirit um, from later passages in John. Now listen to 1 John 2, 1 and 2 again. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, that's helper or parakletos, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The wrath of God is terrifying if we pay attention to limitations. We are so small. We're really helpless and powerless. We don't have a lot of hope. Or comfort if we think about how vulnerable we are. And so we can sympathize with the words of Lamentations, perhaps not to the degree right now, but but we can say there is no comforter. But here's what John has just told us. There is one who stands in the gap between God and man. A helper, an advocate, a defense attorney. His name is Jesus Christ the Righteous. And what can he do for us? He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In other words, the seriousness of sin crushes him instead of us. 
And so John can say in chapter 1 of his gospel, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The good news of the gospel is that you and I don't have to pay for our sins because there is an atoning sacrifice. And that atoning sacrifice has now taken his seat on the heavenly throne and stands in the gap between God and man as our perfect helper. Put it out of your head that you can do something to please God. Look how Israel violated the covenant and then see the same violation tendencies in your own heart because they're there. But here is what God does in his extraordinary commitment to his covenant. He comes to this world. Eternal God takes on flesh and fulfills the obligations of the covenant and bears the penalty of its violation for our sake. This is why Isaiah prophesied about him in chapter 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every single one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus fulfills the covenant that no one else could fulfill. And through his death and resurrection, you and I are invited into a covenant relationship with the living God. A relationship where he says, I have taken you as my children, as my people, and I am your God. It's a relationship where he will pour his spirit into our hearts and change us from the inside out so that we will delight to obey his commands and no longer rebel against him so that we will have life and have life abundantly. He will give us his spirit so that in a world of despair and brokenness and evil, we will have hope because he who is in us has overcome the world. The language of lamentations is shocking and it should be. Apart from Christ, there truly is no comforter. There is nowhere to turn. Think about that this week. Where will you turn? Who's going to help you? But in Christ, in Christ, in His perfect sacrifice, we are not left without a comforter. Because Christ is the one who suffered the pains that we read about in Lamentations 1. We now have a comforter. We have a great high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. We have the spirit who has sealed us for salvation. Our eternal communion with the Lord. And our spirit cries out not in total despair but in hope. As Paul says about death, we grieve but not as those without hope. The evil of this world, the evil in our hearts, the sorrows of this life do not have the final word. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. That joy is only possible because Jesus lied in the tragic darkness of the grave and then burst 
Fourth in glorious victory on Sunday morning. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Our hope is grounded in God's character. In Christ, God's covenant faithfulness has been on display as He acted decisively to overcome sin, Satan, and death on the cross. Let me close with the second verse of Martin Luther's famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabaoth is His name, from age to age the same. And He must win the battle. Let me pray for us. Lord, you are faithful and true and just and holy, and there is none who compares to you. Your beauty has been on display as we have thought about the story of the Old Testament and as we've thought about the realities of lamentations. Even in your judgment, Lord, we see your glory. I pray that each of us would see in the gospel the answer to our greatest problems. I pray for those of us who have heard the gospel or who have been under the impression that we have heard the gospel so many times that we would have our eyes and hearts warmed to it anew today. I pray for our church that you would bring us under the power of the gospel, that we would be people who are committed to the truths that we have expounded here today. And I pray for those who are mourning and suffering in our congregation. We pray for your mercy, and I pray that in Christ they would find a perfect comforter. I pray that your spirit would give them relief from their sorrows. Lord, we pray for those who are suffering around the world, in our nation, in our state, even in our county. And we pray that you would have mercy on them as well. We continue to pray that you would bring healing to this global pandemic. We cry out to you as your church to have mercy on all people. But Lord, we entrust ourselves to you and we pray that we would still see your glory in everything in this world. Lord, we pray that we would never lose sight of what Jesus has done on the cross and what he has accomplished for us and that when we sin... I pray that we would not be broken by the guilt of it, but that we would fly to the cross and there find relief because Christ bore the stripes that brought us healing. We pray these things in his name. Amen.